the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Anything and everything on your heart or on your mind, we'll do the best that we can to provide a little bit of clarity. Uh, You can call us by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, you can use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now uh, button on the top of your screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. This has been um, a, a wonderful week here at Calvary Chapel. We just finished our Calvary Kids Bible School. That's our version of Vacation Bible School. And uh, boy, was this place ever filled with noise, tons and tons and tons of kids. And boy, the Lord was glorified. Please indulge me for just a couple of minutes as we get started. All this is leading up to the fact that our Calvary Kids Bible School dancers are going to be leading worship tonight. And a lot of the kids who were here for the Bible School will be here. So it will be a very crowded scene tonight. But it's always fun to watch them. And they're just so filled with joy and they're excited about what what the Lord has done. But here's where you have to indulge me. You know, one of the things that we always do here at Calvary Chapel, doesn't matter whether I'm teaching adults or, or we're teaching kids, we always give people an opportunity to receive Christ. And we had kids from kindergarten through sixth grade uh, who were part of the Bible school for the week from n- 9 o'clock in the morning until noon every day. Um, and we have tons and tons of our little older kids who are serving and ministering, and of course, lots and lots of adults who are serving as well. And today at the end, um, just before the last dancing and having fun, um, one of our staff members, in this case, it was a young man named Josh, um, shared the gospel, gave an invitation. Um, what these kids have been hearing all week, he sort of brought it all together. We also have another tradition, and we'll do it tonight here at Calvary Chapel. At the end of our Friday night services in particular, we have people that come up, and, and as I'm closing the Bible study, um, people from our pastor's discipleship class, husbands and their wives, some people who are single, but they'll come up and spread across the front of the sanctuary. Uh, there will be, I don't know, 20 to 30 of them. And um, and we always want to give an opportunity for people to be able to come forward and receive prayer, to ask for specific prayer or or just whether or not they, they, they want to give their heart to Christ, whatever it's on their heart. Well, we did that. We do that, not just this year, but we did it today at the end of the Vacation Bible School. And I, I got to tell you, this pastor's heart was so moved because the, the kids that were spread out, now to our VBSers, 
these are older kids, the cool kids. But to me, it was just, it seems like a year ago, they were the little kids coming forward. And they spread across, and the kids, the littler kids, get to go up and ask for prayer and receive Jesus Christ. There was one little girl who didn't make it up in time. You could see that she was kind of struggling, and she went over to one of our young ladies who was serving here, and she said, I didn't get to make it up in time. Will you pray with me? And one of our seventh graders took her out and led her in a prayer to receive Christ. And I just, uh, I was overwhelmed. It's just to, to see the work God is doing. Now, um, oftentimes people object, well, those kids, they don't know what they're doing. And well, I, I think more of them do than you think. But Jesus said, suffer not the little children to come unto me. And, and so we don't know what decisions those kids are going to make in their lives in the future. But here's what we know. We know that this week, our Jesus planted a little deposit in their hearts and minds. And he took everything that they said seriously, and he's going to surround them. And if they make bad decisions, he'll be there. If they make good decisions, they'll experience the goodness of God. But these are kids who are now under his care. Does that mean I think they're all going to heaven just because they came forward at six years old or nine years old? No, I don't think that at all. But here's what I know for sure. If their hearts were truly touched by God, they're his. Ours is to share, to give them the opportunity to introduce them to our Jesus. What happens from this point forward is up to them. And I was thrilled. So tonight, I'm teaching one of the chapters. Um, actually, I, I think perhaps the most influential chapter in terms of forging my ministry style, whatever that means. Uh, Acts chapter 20. And then we're going to worship tonight with the Calvary Kids Bible School dancers. And uh, then tonight, people are going to receive Jesus Christ. It never fails. Somebody gets saved. So join us at 7 o'clock. You can watch it at calvaryessay.com. We live stream it. But if you can get here, please get here. We'll be crowded, but it'll be a blast. So I hope that helps. Okay, let me get to some questions. Sorry for going on for so long, but that's really, really important. Here is our first question that came in. It is from our email inbox from Caleb. Are the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, are they also taken, are to be taken as speaking to the condition of current churches? Caleb, they are. Uh, I think we have to view them in a historical context. We know that they were real churches, literal churches. Seven wasn't, they weren't the seven most influential churches, nor were they the best churches. In fact, five of the seven we would describe as churches in disarray. So they're historical churches. They really existed, and that was the condition of those churches at the time. But we also know from the first chapter of Revelation, the entire book is a prophecy. And so um, not only do they speak to the condition of current churches, they speak to the condition of church ages. By that I mean there has been church history defined by the prevailing sentiments in each of those letters at one time or another. And it's very easy to go back through church history and you can see the the beginning, uh, the apostolic churches, that's Ephesus. Um, um, You can see the church at Thyatira, that's a picture of of what happened in church when the Roman Catholic Church came into a position of power and prominence. And in all of the others, they have a a period of church history they correspond to. Uh, But they also speak to the condition of churches today. There is a uh, a Philadelphian church um, that might be right next door to a, a church of Ephesus or a church of Laodicea. So all of those conditions we can find in the churches. Let me go you one step better, Caleb. I think all seven of the traits of those churches can be found in every church as we look at people individually. Remember, individuals make up the church. And each of these letters has tremendous, immense application for us as individuals. But I think every church, including Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, has people in them who represent the condition of all those churches. 
So we might have somebody who's, um, um, they're weak, they know they're weak, we're holding on to Jesus, uh, as with Philadelphia. We may have the persecuted uh, believer there uh, sitting next to them, and then next to them, uh, the, 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 the lukewarm Christian. I mean, that's just a condition of all things. So I think we have to understand the prophetic value of the entire book of Revelation, and not just that which we view as future uh, from our perspective. So, Caleb, that's a great question, and that's one of the reasons this book is such a blessing, and it's one of the reasons that I believe that God can promise the blessing to those who read the book, who take heart what's in it, and then I would add who do what the book says. Thanks a lot. Here's one from our mobile app from Rich. Uh, I listened to your study last Wednesday. Would you agree that Ahithophel is an example of what happens to a person who is overcome by bitterness? Um, Rich, yes, I would agree wholeheartedly. Uh, Ahithophel was uh, a man who was uh, an advisor to King David. Um, His word, we're told, was as the word of God. I mean, that's how admired and respected he was. Um, But he betrays in in the study that I did last Wednesday, and we're going to continue it um, this coming Wednesday. In that Bible study, he betrays David by turning over to the side of Absalom. And people say, well, why would he desert David? He was such a trusted advisor. And, of course, we know that David uh, used that occasion to write a psalm that was prophetic also of Judas turning on Jesus. But in this particular case, we learned that Ahithophel um, had a long-simmering problem with David that he never addressed, he never dealt with. And the fact is that Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba, the woman that David took into his bed. It means that Ahithophel's grandson-in-law was the righteous, brave, and valiant Uriah. And David had him murdered. And Ahithophel knew those things, and Ahithophel would never get over it. So he sees an opportunity to rebel. He picks the side. Turns out to be a losing side, but he picks Absalom's side, and uh, and and that's what happens with bitterness. Quick word on bitterness for everybody in this audience: you can't live with it. You can't outlast it. You can't forget about it and hope it goes away. We have to deal with bitterness. If you have offended someone, or if someone has offended you, deal with it. Don't just look the other way and hope it goes away. The enemy will use that. The Apostle Paul calls it a root of bitterness. And when that root takes hold, it never, ever stops growing. And we will, all of us, be overcome by bitterness, by unforgiveness, These are things that we have to put a stake through the heart of in our lives. And unless and until we do that, we're all in the position, what I consider a very dangerous position, because the enemy's going to wait until exactly the right moment, and then he's going to spring the trap. And that's what he did uh, with Ahithophel. He used Absalom's rebellion, um, Rich, to wait patiently until the time was right, and it's going to end up costing Ahithophel his life. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live questions and answers. Here is a question anonymously from a mobile app. How can a loving God judge a person who has never heard the gospel message? Uh, anonymous, I I don't want this to be personalized, but but normally this is not what I consider an honest question. It's certainly not a thoughtful question. That God is loving was demonstrated that he judged his son. He sent his son and judged him, poured out his wrath on him so that people who are bound for hell could be saved. John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we're told we're born condemned. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That means apart from Jesus Christ... Everybody is going to hell. Everybody. 
The second thing that I want you to consider is at least from God's perspective, there is nobody who's never heard the gospel message. God has revealed himself in creation. David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God day after day. They pour forth speech. There's no nation or language where they're not understood. So everybody's without excuse. We can get up in the morning and see the sun rises in the east every day, same time. We can look in the west tonight and see this beautiful sunset. We know that summer comes every time, every year the same time, and likewise all the other seasons. So the fact that there is a designer to what's been designed is instinctively clear to everybody. Now, we can choose not to believe, we can choose to ignore it, but it doesn't mean that we're not guilty. Not only did he create this world that holds us accountable, but he gave us a conscience. The first time you did something and you knew you shouldn't do it, but you did it anyway, you're guilty, and you know you're guilty. That conscience is a gift from God to help us avoid judgment. Not only that, we know that God has revealed himself through his law. The entirety of the law, but but just using the Ten Commandments as an example, there isn't a single human being on this earth who would not agree that if everybody lived according to the Ten Commandments, the world would be better. And the law of God revealed the holiness of God Instinctively, we know if he's holy and we sin, then we're guilty, we fall short. And here's what you have to understand about a just God. Forget the term loving God. Again, that's never a dispute. He sent his son as God's love offering to this world. But we know he's a just God. And a just God has to punish sin. That's why Jesus is the only way. Jesus died for my sins. When I stand before God, I won't give account of my life. I'll give an account of his life. Anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to have to give account of their own life. And, of course, that's where we're going to fall short. Final thought on this, Anonymous. When everybody or anybody responds to the light they have. Let's say I get up, I'm, I'm, I'm born 5,000 years ago, and I get up in the morning and I say, you know, every day that sun comes up in the same place, and I come to the conclusion that somebody is causing that to happen. If I crowd and I want to know the one who causes that to happen, then God will begin the process of revealing himself to us. God will begin the process of revealing himself to us. God rewards those who diligently or earnestly seek him. All we have to do is believe that. The Ethiopian eunuch is a great example from the book of Acts. Think about all the other people who, when they heard the gospel message, they were ready. It's because God prepares their heart. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 is an example. God is always drawing the honest seeker to himself. All you have to do is be honest enough to seek. I said that was the final thought, but one more thought. If somebody is raised in an Islamic country, a Muslim home, somebody's raised in a Buddhist home, Jehovah's Witness home, a Mormon home, a Catholic home, they have the responsibility to find out if the God that is declared to them really is God. We are all foolish if we just accept the fact that, well, since I was raised in this home, he has to be God. No, we have the responsibility to find out if what we worship as God really is God. If it's not, we're accountable. If we claim to worship God but we don't know who he is, that's on us, that's not on God. So maybe you can change your 
wording. Instead of a loving God, don't doubt the love of God. Remember that he is a just God and a righteous God. 340-9585 for our live calls and questions. We've got about five minutes left in this half of the program. Here's a question from Mark from our email inbox. How can a Christian discern God's will for their lives? For example, God's call to ministry or to live in a particular city. I have a brother in the Lord who's contemplating these things and he's struggling with what and how to know God's will. Mark, it's not just your brother who's struggling with this. Everybody is struggling with this. And I think what we do is we make it too difficult for ourselves. The way to discern God's will for our lives is given to us in formulaic fashion in, in Romans chapter 12. In view of what God has done for you, it says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is our, the NIV says, genuine act of worship. The King James says, your reasonable service. So to discern God's will, you start by offering your body completely to him, holding nothing back. And then it says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's perfect and acceptable will is. So how do you do it? You offer your body to the Lord, hold nothing back, and then you start throwing away the things that this world has taught you. And instead, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, the only way we can do that, be transformed, is to make our minds new. And the only place we can do that is in the Word of God. And here's what I can promise you, Mark. Your brother and everybody else will have no problem discerning God's will for their lives if they're men or women of the Word. And if their body is rejecting the worldly stuff and embracing the things that they're reading in the Bible... And if they've offered their body to God, they will know what God's will for their lives is. You can't miss it, in fact. Now, let me get even more practical than that. If I'm with Jesus today, now, when we think about God's will, and and again, we'll get specific like, well, what city should I live in? For me, in my case, God sent us to San Antonio. We'd never been here. We didn't know anybody here. But he sent Paul and me to San Antonio, Texas, and we knew beyond any doubt that that's what his will for us was. How did I know that? I knew it because I was with him. Too often we're thinking about the five-year will for a will of God. Where should I go? What job should I take? If you're with Jesus where you are today, if you're abiding in him where you are today, if you're serving him for his glory, where you are today, sort of blossoming where you're planted, then God can trust you with his will and he'll let you know it. Remember two things, Mark, and you can tell your brother this. We walk by faith and not by sight. And when we're walking by faith, Jesus, Hebrews eleven six says, rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but we please God, and when we please him, we know we're following him. And here's the thing, none of us can miss God's will if we're walking with Jesus, who is God. Problem is, I think we want specific information. We want it now. Instead of just serving God where we are, we withhold from him where we are and hope that suddenly he's going to take it away and, and, and just sort of right in the sky, go here, go to this city, do this. I can say this, a call to ministry, that's going to be from God. If you're living in God's will, it's not the enemy who's going to call you to ministry. So pursue it. It's a great, great, great call. How are we doing on time? Got two minutes. Let's go to Pam from Lockhart, Texas. Pam, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you. I have a question about Calvinism. Oh. Can you help okay. me? I can. What do you want to know? Um, they. I just had a lady that was a uh, Calvinist, I guess, come in and talk to me, and she was saying there's no need to repent or evangelize that God has his chosen people already chosen. Wow. 
Okay, Pam, I can, I'm going to ask you to listen because I'm going to have to finish my answer on the other side of the break, but it's a very, very important question, and I will do the best I can to answer that question. Thank you, Pam. I appreciate okay. it very, very much. I'll, okay. Thanks. I'll start here, and I think we're just right now just about a minute left uh, in this half of the program. So um, I am not... Pam, as you know, if you've been listening to me, a fan of Calvinism, and this is why. This insidious doctrine, now I say that it is not a heretical doctrine, but it's a fruit killer doctrine. It destroys our desire to share with others. It destroys our pursuit of personal holiness. And that's why this doctrine has to be dealt with. So, Pam, hold on right after the break. I'll finish my answer. You are listening to the Friday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. We will be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program we have only 30 minutes left in the week boy time flies and time is really really going fast i want to get to pam's question and by the way pam when you're listening uh we are just about to affiliate uh, a Calvary Chapel work that's getting started in Lockhart, Texas. Uh, the pastor's name there is Pete, uh, and his wife is Sarah. If you want more information, uh, I'll be happy to give it to you. Just uh, call um, or, or just just email me, um, uh, questions at calvarysa.com, and we'll get you all of the contact information. And you won't have to worry about this Calvinism thing. Pam, Calvinism and, and the doctrine she was referring to, is um, um, unconditional election. God knows who are his, and there's no point in telling anybody else because you don't know if God's chosen him. In, in other words, in some extreme cases, Pam, what happens is um, uh, people decide that, that uh, well, since uh, I don't know who God chose, there's no reason for me to share with anybody. Um, but, but they don't understand they, they're unwilling to understand the doctrine of election. Uh, election or predestination is 100% a biblical doctrine. But the basis upon God's choice is his foreknowledge. He knows who's going to be his. Um, he waited for me as Paula prayed for me for 13 years. He bore my ugliness and, and the pain that I caused and never once took his love from me. Why? Because he knew there was a day in 1991 in February where I was going to meet him. I was going to surrender my life to him. And I couldn't change God's mind about loving me. That's in short what Romans 8.29 says. First Peter chapter 1, the first two verses talk about those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, here's our problem, Pam. We don't know who God's chosen. And so we have a mandate to tell people about Jesus. We do it because he told us to do it. And one of the problems is because witnessing is uncomfortable to a lot of people, Calvinism sort of gives them an out. It's not pleasing to our flesh to share it's more pleasing to our flesh to say, well, you know, since I don't know who's chosen, what's the point? And it gives us a way to escape being obedient to the Lord. So it's very important, and you made my point. That's why this doctrine is such a fruit killer. I've seen young men and women start out so well, get really passionate about the Lord, and then listen to some Calvinist and decide, well, that makes sense. And by the way, it does make sense to our natural way of thinking. And they lost all their joy. Paul says, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. That's uh, Philemon, the sixth verse. 
um, the person that you were talking to has no understanding of every, every good thing we have in Christ because she or he is unwilling to share. Secondly, this is equally important. The idea that people don't have free will is contrary to the teaching of the Bible from the very beginning. God gave Abram, who became Abraham, a choice and, and called him a friend when he responded to that choice. Joshua says at the end of his life, if God is God, choose to serve him. As for me and my house, we choose to serve the Lord. And he, and he offers a choice to them. Jesus and his message is constantly is giving choices to people. And the idea that we are some spiritual robots who have no say-so in the matter is just evil. Pam, the worst thing that you said about this person's argument was that there's no need to repent. When the Bible, from cover to cover, tells us that the only way we can have access to God is to repent of our sins. And this whole doctrine of Calvinism as it relates to eternal security, well, if God's chosen you, you can do what you want, you don't have to say so in the matter, you're going to heaven. God doesn't take anybody to heaven against our will. And so please don't pay any attention. Uh, don't listen. Uh, there are great Bible teachers who happen to be Calvinists, and you can listen to them, uh, and they will be a blessing to you as they're talking about anything but the doctrine of election. But just take what the Bible says at face value. Tell people that Jesus loves them and he wants to spend forever with them. And as you do that, your life will thrive. Sadly, your friend's life is just going to dry up. I can't imagine somebody saying, well, there's no need to repent because Jesus is stuck with me, which in effect is the argument that he or she was making. So, Pam, thank you very much for the call. Remember, if you are interested in a work that's just getting started good uh, in Lockhart. Um, write to questions at calvaryessay.com and we will make sure that you get all of the contact information for them. They've been going for a while. I think there's probably 60 or so people that are showing up regularly. So it, it's not a brand new, there's only going to be two or three people kind of work there. And Lockhart, as you know, Pam, is not a big place. So if you want the information, we'd be happy to forward it to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Clay. He says, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, no one knows the hour of his return, but if he is God, shouldn't he know? Um, Clay, that makes sense to us he should know, but remember that when Jesus said that, he was in his human body, we know that Jesus walked by faith depending on what the Father said and what the Father did. And so Jesus veiled much of the attributes of his deity. Uh, he's God. Jesus knows now for sure. He's at the right hand of God. But when he was here, and that's the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, um, that information was, was hidden from him from heaven, and Jesus was okay with that. But it was because, and the, the, the description is in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and took on human limitations. He humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. And then Paul says, to start that whole section off, our mind should be as his. So today, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, the Father knows exactly when he's coming. And I hope and pray that it's soon, Clay. But when he was here, he walked this earth as a human being, just like you and just like me. Do you notice, Clay, that he never did anything in a miraculous vein to benefit himself? Why? Because the miracles were signs that he was who he said he was. They weren't to be used for his own comfort. Jesus got tired. That's the limitations of human flesh. Jesus was hungry. Jesus wept. His heart was broken. Jesus got angry, righteously so, but he got angry. Why? Because he had the same limitations in his flesh as you do and as I do. And today he knows everything, Clay. He just didn't know it then. 
Good question. Thank you, Clay. Here's an anonymous question. I've gotten had this question before. Was Jesus black? A man at work claims he was and says white people have stolen his identity. Anonymous, the best way to answer those questions, and um, it rarely is sufficient uh, because um, these black Israelites or, 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 or other names that these groups go by, they aren't interested in the truth. Jesus was a Jew. Period. His mother was a Jew. His brother and sisters were Jews. And a Jew isn't black. They're Semitic peoples. And if you go to Jerusalem now, you can look around and see people who live among the Semitic peoples. And they look very similar. So no, Jesus was not an African-American God. White people haven't stolen his identity. Unfortunately, the enemy's stolen their heart. 340-9585. Let's go to Jimmy calling from San Antonio on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, um, hi. How are you doing? Um, Do you- I have a I have a family member that tells me that you know they've been brought up that they don't want to, they don't believe in talking about religion and politics, and then mm-hmm. they also believe in seances and and <laughs> and, and then, you know and and I'm, I'm trying to and I, I love this person a lot I do I, I love this person a lot and I try to talk to her about it and say she just. I'm, I don't want to hear about religion and politics, and, and I don't want to. I don't, I don't talk politics. But I, I don't want to hear. And, and, and if if uh, and I said, well, and if if I'm going to hell, then I then if I'm going to hell, I accept that. And I said, I didn't say you were going to hell. I just said, in order to inherit the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ just needs to be born again. And I did, that's all I said. I don't know. It, it, it's it's my mom. That's who it is. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy. A couple of things. I I, I I I wouldn't have done anything different than than you did, except. I wouldn't have said, if she said, if I'm going to hell, I accept it. I wouldn't have said, I didn't say you're going to hell. Uh, I would uh, affirm what she said. Hell is a long time, and, and to make a choice like that, you better be sure, because making the choice to go to hell doesn't mean that you have to, because you can choose Jesus and not go to hell. Now, when people don't want to talk anymore, especially with family members, um, uh, typically I'll stop talking. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop talking about Jesus. The reason people say don't talk about religion and politics is because they know that those are sources of arguments, and we don't want to argue with people either. So all I would do is tell your mom, with tears in your eyes and tears coming from your heart, I would say, you talk about a lot of things that I don't want to hear about. And I'm never rude enough just to shut you off. But here's what I'm going to say, and then I won't say anything else. Mom, I can't imagine heaven without you. That would break my heart. And if you make that choice, it's not because God didn't try. He loves you. And then just pray for her. Live your life, Jimmy, with the joy of the Lord and live your life in such a way that she can see there's a difference, that you have a hope in you that she doesn't have. And as you live that way and as you pray for her, I promise you the Holy Spirit will start pounding on the door of her heart. Now, I had the same exact experience, not with my mom, but with my father. And my dad used to shut me off immediately. Don't try to convert me, he'd say. Don't want to talk about it. Um, But you know what happened, Jimmy, on his deathbed? He wanted, he needed to hear about Jesus, and he received Jesus Christ. So don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Keep praying for your mom. But by the demonstration of your life and the joy in your heart, demonstrate to her that her position on Jesus Christ is depriving her of the same joy that she can see in you. So I hope that's good. Uh, Jimmy, Paula wants to know, how's Martha doing with her bad cough? It's getting better. 
Good. Because I talked to her last night. I said, you know, me and, me and my wife had differences for a while. But, you know, I, mean, I said, I said, hey, that uh, cough is, uh, have you seen a doctor for that? She says, um, no, but it's getting better. And I said, okay. Uh, I've been praying over her, like, you know, God heal her. She says, I think it's just allergies. I said, okay. It's getting a little bit okay. better. Okay. Well, and, and we're praying for Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless you. We'll be praying for your mom, too. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Jack. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, since Judas gave the money back, is there a chance he will be in heaven? Jack, no. Judas was doomed uh, from the very beginning. Jesus knew that he was going to be the betrayer. Uh, His betrayal was predicted uh, hundreds of years earlier uh, in the Psalms. Uh, So so there's no way that Judas is going to get sort of a backdoor pass into heaven. Um, Here's what Judas did. Judas was, was, the Bible says he repented or he was sorry for what he did, but he was sorry that it didn't work out. It's always interesting because they happened about the same time Judas ended up taking his own life. Uh, Peter, who denied Jesus, uh, the Bible says they both were sorry, they both were repentant, but Peter was repentant and changed. Peter was repentant and asked forgiveness. Judas, on the other hand, was just sorry that things didn't work out. Judas was always for Judas. Judas never had in mind the things of God. He followed Jesus because he saw Jesus as a tool to get what he wanted out of life, not only in this life, but in the next. And that's not the way we can come to Jesus. You know, unfortunately, Jack, a lot of people treat Jesus now just like Judas treated Jesus. You know, we love him, we say we do, we follow him when things are going well, but the minute things don't turn out the way we want, we turn our back on him, we get mad at him. Can you imagine getting mad at God? And yet we do. No, Judas was only sad that things didn't work out his way. His plan didn't work. And by the way, no plan that is contrary to God's plan is going to work out. And Judas, unfortunately, has had about 2,000 years to understand what torment really is. Hope that answers the question. Anonymous. Uh, says, if God made man male and female, does it make sense that he made his male and female leading to gender difficulties or gender confusion? Uh, anonymous, no, we, we, that's to misunderstand. God made man, the word is Adam. That's where Adam's name came from. And it means mankind. So God made mankind male and female. He made them. Those are the two genders, the two sexes. And so the confusion has nothing to do with God. It's not saying that he made us, made us with male parts and female parts or made us with, with male and female emotions. That's not at all what we're being told there. All we have to do to understand what our current culture says is the lack of distinctions in gender or, or the right to choose what our gender is going to be. All they're doing is causing pain and misery. Gender is the easiest thing to determine. All you have to do is take your clothes off and look in the mirror. And you say, well, it's not that easy. Then take a DNA test. Chromosomes. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. 340-9585. Here is a question from AA from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, I've been studying John 15, the vine and the branches. I'm having trouble with what verse 6 says. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away in rithers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. There are times in my life when I bear no fruit uh, and therefore are not abiding in Christ. I'm not sure I'm alone. 
in the world of professed Christians. During these seasons of politi- of spiritual blindness, am I simply set aside to bear fruit later, or am I destined for fire if the season, um, or for a season of, of a certain duration? Uh, a, a, you, you take the, the, the example, the illustration, too far. Uh, Jesus doesn't say that if you don't abide in him, you're going to hell. We read it that way, um, but what he's saying is you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Now, if you take a branch, you break it off of the vine, and it's not getting any of the nourishing sap that gives it life, and you throw it away, and it withers, uh, obviously it's not very attractive. And there's really nothing to do except to throw it into the fire and be burned. But he's not saying that about human beings, because human beings can be redeemed. Branches can't. When a branch is dead, it's dead. And what Jesus is saying, that when we're abiding in Christ, we're alive. If we're not abiding in Christ, then there's no life. It doesn't mean we're going to hell. It means that there's just no life. So what happens in these seasons when you're not abiding or when you're not abiding in Christ? The, the answer is obvious from your question and from from our life experience. Everyone who's a Christian understands how dry, how bone dry those times in the wilderness are when we're not with Jesus. We try to do things on our own. And we wonder, why can't I hear you, Lord? Why am I in this wilderness? Well, it's because you're not where he is. You're not with him. And then we repent, we get back with him, and life comes flooding back in. You see, that means we're much more viable than the branch. But in terms of bearing fruit, we have to be with the vine. Now, for us, the life-nourishing sap that gives life to the branch is a picture of the Holy Spirit. If you're not abiding in Christ, you have no power. And so that's all he's trying to say. Now, here's something, A, that I'll say to you, and uh, because I don't know you personally, this, 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 I don't want this to be taken personally. But when you say there are times in my life where I bear no fruit because I'm not abiding in Christ, I want those times to make you really angry. Not angry at God, but, but angry with you, angry at sin. Why would we settle for the fact that there are times where no fruit's coming from us? I mean, that just makes no sense. If somebody comes to me, I've had people come to me and say, well, uh, I'll say, well, so are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying to be, but right now I'm backsliding. And I always ask the question, well, so how long is that going to last? What it means is they've given their life over to sin. And it's going to last as long as they've given their life over to sin. Well, in your case, the times in your life where you're bearing no fruit because you're not abiding in Christ, how long are you going to let that last? We all go through those little dips. But make sure they're little dips. And when you feel a dry time where there's no fruit coming from your life, maybe uh, Galatians chapter 5, the bad fruit of the flesh describes you more than the good fruit of the Spirit. Get angry. There's an enemy who's stealing from you. And just say, Jesus, I don't want to do this. I'm so sorry. Hey, I'll give you sort of an equivalent. Uh, I have a mind that wanders. And, um, you know, I'll get up in the morning and while I'm doing stuff, I'm praying. I look at pictures. I've got a prayer wall and i got pictures of my family and I'm praying. And there's times when I can be praying, the right words coming out of my mouth, but my mind is wandering. And I say, Jesus, I don't want my mind to wander. I want to talk to you. I want you to hear my prayers for these people. Well, the next time you find you're in a season where there's no fruit, repent. That's what he said to the church at Ephesus. You've forsaken that love you had at first. So remember the first love. Repent for having left it. Return to that place of your first love. And you're going to find yourself abiding in Christ. It's so important, AA, that we never be satisfied with, well, just sometimes I'm not doing well. Never, ever be satisfied with that. AA, thank you for the question. One more question, I think. Um, let's go to. 
Nancy, and we'll close with this one today. Nancy says, is the rapture a biblical doctrine? And if so, is it described in Matthew 24, where it says one man is left and the other one is taken? Uh, It is a biblical doctrine, Nancy, but Matthew 24 has nothing whatsoever to do with the rapture of the church. Uh, In Matthew 24, it's the Olivet Discourse. This is a very Jewish chapter. In fact, the gospel is very Jewish, but, but, but the Olivet Discourse is very Jewish. And what Jesus is saying is one will be taken to judgment, the other will be left. Uh, but, but it has nothing to do with the rapture. I know it sounds like the rapture, and it's mistakenly supposed to be the rapture, but it has nothing to do with the rapture. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51, um, talks about the rapture. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. I call it a nanosecond. We'll be caught up in the air to be with him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 2 Thessalonians, a little more explanation, chapter 3. So please understand the doctrine of the rapture. It's falling out of favor. People are trying to outsmart themselves. But believe me, a time of God's wrath is coming, and we who are real Christians can't be here. doesn't mean you have to be a good Christian. It means if you're a real believer, Jesus knows who you are. You've been born again then you will be raptured and taken out of here and you will escape judgment. Jesus even prayed that we would be counted worthy to escape these things, the things concerning judgment. So not only is the rapture a biblical doctrine, it's a doctrine that Paul calls the blessed hope. And what we need to do is is live every day as though Jesus were coming today. Every day could be the last day. So look up. That's why I look at the eastern sky every morning. Today, maybe, Lord. Hold on to it, Nancy. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a great week on the program. May the Lord bless you and keep you going to church this week. Have a blast. Tell people Jesus loves them. Calvary Kids Bible Dancers tonight. We'll see you at 7. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.